I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our climate positive future a reality. I am back from parental leave and have a freaking adorable baby named Arrow. And I want to give a huge thanks to Lara Pierpoint, Director of Early Climate Infrastructure at Prime Coalition, for guest hosting What It Takes While I Was On Leave. Now on to the show. June to August 2023 shattered records in the Northern and Southern Hemispheres. It was the hottest summer ever in the Northern Hemisphere and the hottest winter ever in the Southern Hemisphere. For many, it felt like a summer that marked a shift from talking about climate change to experiencing climate change. Back in 2018, an Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, report painted a dire picture of the levels of carbon in our atmosphere. According to the report, in order to return to an ideal amount of carbon in the atmosphere for human existence and for the health of the planet, we need to return Earth's atmosphere to 280 parts per million of CO2. Industry experts believe that in order to achieve that goal, we'll have to be removing 10 to 20 billion tons of carbon per year by 2050. How do we turn the tide from emitting to removing? You might be familiar with carbon offsets, which aim to compensate for the amount of carbon dioxide emitted by an individual or a company as a result of their activity. But offsets alone simply aren't enough. In order to slow global climate change, we need to start removing carbon. And that is exactly what this month's What It Takes guest, Peter Reinhardt, founder and CEO of Charm Industrial, is doing. Our mission is to return the atmosphere to 280 parts per million CO2 profitably. The overall problem here is ever since the 2018 IPCC report, it's been really clear that We just have too much CO2 already in the atmosphere and we're still putting more in. And so we've effectively overfilled the bathtub at this point and we're going to have to remove CO2 from the atmosphere one way or another. At Charm Industrial, they're employing a novel approach to drain the bathtub. The team at Charm developed a process for removing carbon that starts with biomass waste and uses pyrolysis, which heats up the biomass to over 500 degrees Celsius in the absence of oxygen, and ends with bio-oil, which is then injected into underground wells. This process delivers waste removal for farmers who sell their bio-waste to Charm, a revenue stream for owners of abandoned oil wells who sell the rights to re-inject Charm's bio-oil, and finally, carbon removal for companies looking to permanently remove their emissions. What we actually do is we take agricultural residue, things like corn stalks, um, or wildfire prevention residues like vegetation management around high power lines and stuff like that, take that waste biomass, which has already captured CO2, and then we turn it into a liquid called bio-oil. And that bio-oil, your mental model should be barbecue sauce because the watery fraction is literally the liquid smoke that goes into barbecue sauce. Uh, So we make massive amounts of this barbecue sauce, basically, and then inject that into old oil and gas wells uh, throughout the Midwest. According to the Berkeley Carbon Trading Project, about 90% of carbon offset and sequestration solutions like reforestation don't actually work to remove or offset carbon emissions. According to Charm, by re-injecting the bio-oil, their process permanently removes the carbon from circulating in the atmosphere. 
and you know you have CO2 out of the atmosphere into the plants into the oil and then permanently stored underground and what's cool is it's very dense and so it sinks in the formation and then actually solidifies so you know a million years from now this barbecue sauce is going to be a really weird coal some anthropologist is going to be like what the hell happened here So in order to baffle future generations of anthropologists and help the world reach its carbon removal goals, Peter and his team at Charm are re-engineering the carbon removal industry, and it all starts with their special sauce. I spoke to Peter about Charm's mission to turn the tide of global climate change with carbon removal, from his childhood as a self-identified hardcore math nerd with a passion for the environment, to his early career as a ridiculously successful tech entrepreneur, to switching gears and delivering a carbon removal process to a planet that needs it now more than ever. Peter, we first met, I think, a few years ago through mutual friends, and I've been following Charm Industrial and following you and your work ever since. So I'm really happy to have you on the show. Yeah, likewise. Thanks. Really excited to be here. Peter, going all the way back to your childhood, you grew up in the rolling wheat fields of Pullman in eastern Washington. What was it like growing up in Pullman, and what were you like as a kid? Beautiful. First off, the the Palouse is what that region is called. It's just absolutely beautiful. These like just undulating, rolling hills in, in the fall. It's just like the wheat turns golden and it's just golden hills as far as you can see. Um, so very like stunningly beautiful. Um, I spent a lot of my time like, uh, you know, sliding down the hill in the back of our apartment complex, which was student housing, uh, in the mud, um, catching grasshoppers, like biking out to the nuclear power plant, um, a couple blocks away. Uh, <laughs> we're on the very edge of town. Um, uh, stream keepers was probably one of my favorite things where we like, I uh, went and cleaned up a little local stream, picking up trash and, and, and whatever else, catching tadpoles. It was very idyllic. I love it. I love it. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, I know your mom was an art educator and taught at local museums and your dad studied architecture and was a contractor. Tell me about your parents and what you learned from them that has stuck with you. Yeah, I think my, my dad was very influential uh, to me in kind of focusing me in uh, in math, he always articulated just like just how important like math and physics and engineering was to like really building things in the world around us. And um, I, I, I really like took to that um, and particularly in middle school kind of took off on math. Uh, so I ended up going pretty far in math in high school uh, through calculus to complex analysis and, and so on at, at the University of Washington. So I was like hardcore math nerd is what you should take from that. Um, <laughs> math competitions yes but like you know uh even more um, university level yeah, math classes yeah in high yeah and, uh you know i was definitely the pimply kid uh in in the back of the in the back of the math class <laughs> i feel like m- most of us listening and producing the show were <laughs> and then my mom's influence i think was uh one she was always just like in my corner fighting for uh access to like more advanced classes, uh, which was non-trivial. It was like non-trivial to get permission to go to a university class or non-trivial to like actually get permission to go to the advanced classes and so on. So she, she was also in my corner there. And uh, in the long run, I think was very influential on like, it's not enough to just, just be there for your family and support yourself financially. It's like you need to do good in the world, um, which I think came down through both family lines, but my, my mom particularly put an emphasis on it. Both of my grandpas were uh, we're preachers. And so there's certainly like a uh, do good in the world and, and do right by people kind of thread. Yeah. 
Um, so you're taking these university level math classes and you get into MIT initially to study physics, not math, uh, and then aerospace. So why MIT, why physics, then aerospace? And what was your experience like at MIT? I think what really attracted me about MIT was like this major focus on math and engineering, uh, which is kind of obvious, but like the degree to which it like consumed me uh, was maybe hard to express. Like I wore an MIT shirt probably you know, every wash cycle. So, you know, and maybe more than that. Let's <laughs> From be how old? How old were you? In high you started school, wearing it? probably freshman year of high school. Uh, I think I was probably wearing the MIT shirt like three to five days a week. Probably, probably should have been. You knew you more. wanted to go there yeah, very, as like yeah. a 14 year old. Yeah. And I like bought the books that had like the, the, all the legends of like the police car getting disassembled and reassembled. And those the like, it was like religious for me. Yeah. Um, and uh, I did not get in early. I applied early and I was like, I'm just going to apply. Hopefully I'll get in. And I got, I like got deferred to, to later admission and I was devastated. Absolutely devastated. Um, and my Did you apply anywhere else? I also applied to Caltech and University of Washington. Um, and, but I hadn't applied yet. And so my mom over Christmas break that year was like, you really should apply to more schools. And I was like, it's just not worth it. Like, <laughs> like, like MIT or bus. MIT or nothing. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully I got it in the spring. Um, and, you know, later on met uh, my wife uh, and also met my co-founders and like it was totally transformational experience. So it was the right it was the right thing to aspire to. Mm. And tell me about, you know, you're you had this deep, deep love for math, um, but you studied physics and then switched again to aerospace. Tell me about that evolution. Yeah, I kind of thought I would get a degree in physics for like the first semester or two. Um and then we got to, I think it was like quantum wave stuff. And I like started looking at those wave things <laughs> and I was like, this is just way too abstract. Like, <laughs> so I'd kind of gone from math and then to physics. It was like the sequential, like failing out of like the philosophically pure things. Uh, <laughs> and then after physics, it was like, oh, I'll do aerospace engineering because I like, always wanted to do rockets and, and stuff like that. So I started doing uh, like a washout class that is like a hard, hard class to make it through. And so I was really enjoying that up until junior year. And then uh, we actually did a tour of a General Electric Blackhawk engine manufacturing plant near near Boston, which was super cool and also made it immediately clear to me that I did not want to be in aerospace engineering uh, because it was such such a static industry. Like everything now, I mean, you have a few examples, but they are the exceptions that prove the rule, right, of like SpaceX. Uh everything else is basically in stasis in, in that industry. And so it was all like squeaking out another 1% or less uh, from these jet engines. You mentioned uh, how profound MIT was that you met your wife. Um, I know you took this class called Founder's Journey and it changed your life, yeah, in a bunch of ways. Tell me about, about the class and what it inspired you to do. So the context here is I had basically had this moment where I was like, yeah, I don't know if aerospace engineering is my thing. Uh, we, my roommates and I had talked about, uh, Calvin and Elia, who later became my co-founders. Um, we talked about starting a company together and we were pretty excited about it. And then this class came up called Founders Journey and, uh, Erica, Elia, and I, I decided we were going to take it. And basically the structure of the class was every week, a new speaker would come in, someone who'd started and built a company and they would just tell their story. Super simple. We had a chance to ask questions. And one of the first weeks uh, was this guy, Adam Smith, who's, who's awesome. He founded this company called Zobni Inbox Backwards. And 
uh, he told this story and he like raised $45 million and his company was growing really quickly. And I was like, whoa, he was an MIT. It was just like the whole thing. I was like, whoa, this is amazing. And then afterwards, uh, you know, Billy, we were standing around chatting and he's like, I'm going to invite Adam back to the dorm for a beer. I was like, don't do that. That's just embarrassing yourself. Yeah. You're like, you like, can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, please don't embarrass me by trying to, yeah. and he's like, no, screw it. I'm going to do it. So he like walked over and he's like, yeah, hey, I'm going to come back to the dorm for beers. And I was like, yeah, sure. Like, <laughs> Whoa. Like, and so there was just like this leveling of the playing field and like, he's a real person and, and everything became much more approachable. Uh, like full credit to Adam for that, you know? Um, and so we were sitting outside my dorm room having a beer and like talking about what it was like to start a company. And that it was like that moment for me was incredibly pivotal, pivotal. Um, but also Himant, Himant, who like was the co-teacher of the class, became the first check into segment uh, when we were in Y Combinator, uh, after Y Combinator. And then he recently led Charm Series B. So like the whole thing has just been like a, a, a nexus. Tell me about that going from beers with Adam in the dorm to starting segment and ultimately dropping out of MIT as a junior. We basically spent, MIT has this thing called uh, independent activities period in January. So you can like do whatever you want. Uh, but the idea is you like build something. And so we decided to build a uh, play around with a classroom lecture tool app uh, over the next January. And then I uh, tried pitching it to professors and so on and got into Y Combinator with that idea. And part of Y Combinator's thing at the time was you have to drop out. You have to show that you're committed. And so we did. Um, one of the three of us, Calvin, actually went back and finished, but Ellie uh, uh, and I did not. Um, and yeah, so then then we were off to the races. We were pretty we were pretty committed at that point. We raised like 600K coming out of demo day. Realized the product wasn't going to work, like pivoted. It, it became a pretty brutal first year and a half, but... Um, but we were committed at that point. You mentioned brutal to the point of having panic attacks. Like, what was that like? And then what did you do next that ultimately pivoted segment in a way that it became an incredible success? Yeah, we spent the first six months or whatever trying to build this classroom lecture tool, deployed it in classrooms. Did not work. It was horribly distracting. It was awful outcome. <laughs> Professors were mad at us. I mean, it was like, it was bad. So like two oh, weeks no. after fundraising the 600K, we had to call back investors and be like, uh, like, sorry, I know you just wire, literally wired the money two weeks ago, but like, this is a bad idea. Um, what should we do with your money? Yeah. <laughs> like, we're happy to go pivot to something else. And to their credit, all but one, sorry, all but two said like, you should, you should go forth and, and do your thing. Um, two asked for the money back one that had LPs that were committed to education and we weren't going to be in education anymore. And the other was an angel investor who, uh, certainly regrets his decision in the, in the long run. Um, <laughs> Uh, everyone else though, like full credit to them, they, they stood behind us as a team. So anyways, we pivoted to an analytics tool. We tried building that for a year, never found product market fit with that, like a web analytics tool. And so that year and a, end of that year and a half is where I was really starting to get into this like panic attacks and, and like feeling pretty bad at like a, a health level, even from, from the kind of stress there. Uh, and then my co-founder Ian, uh, had this idea kind of like recognized the potential in an open source software library called analytics JS that we had already built. And we decided to launch it on hacker news to, yeah, I wanted to kill it. So that was a good way to try to kill it. And, uh, to my surprise, when we did that, it went straight to the top, got hundreds of upvotes, thousands of stars on GitHub, thousands of email signups. Like we'd built it for ourselves. It turned out to solve the real problem and other people have the same problem. 
So uh, things took off from there. Yeah, I feel like those are often the best ideas, you know, your own lived pain. Um, so you started this company segment in 2011, kind of a rocky start. But then nine years later in 2020, with about 600 people on the team, you and your co-founders sell it to Twilio for $3.2 billion. You're what, 31, 32 years old at the time? Yeah, yeah, I was 31. Yeah, well, well tell me about that. <laughs> what, what was that like? Uh, I mean, crazy, crazy, uh, especially in retrospect, when when you look at like what the market has done, like, I mean, at the time I was like, this is the, this is the right thing for the company. Uh, like one, there were lots of bigger competitors entering the space and like Twilio had great distribution, great developer brand. We were a developer brand, um, great product potential integration, which I think is going to be fulfilled, which is really cool. Uh, which is like segment has all the data and Twilio, uh, has all the communications channels. And so you marry the customer data and the communication channels. And now you have like an insane marketing, uh, stack, um, so that that was really the potential and customers were starting to ask for that kind of thing. So that, that's where the logic came from. But in retrospect, like 2020 was a heady time for, for software companies. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, 10 years of grind, like it wasn't <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 10, 10 years of grind for the overnight success. But, um, but yeah, the biggest lesson I had along the way was all around go to market and sales and just like how important that is in addition to the engineering. Yeah, say more about that. I know, yeah, you've talked about, you know, product market fit and the value of go-to-market strategy and how often that's overlooked by engineers and technologists who are like, it's all about the tech. And then you realize it's not. Like, t- tell me more about that. I mean, I was one of those engineers, right? Like 10 years ago, I was like, yeah, sales. Like, I don't know. It's like a thing. you It's an appendage you stamp on at the end and like you kind of grin and bear it. and like <laughs> Necessary evil. Exactly, necessary evil, yeah. Uh, we know that because we experience bad sales. But good sales is, is not like that. Um, and a lot of enterprise sales is good sales, uh, where the salesperson is actually helping the organization that they're selling to identify what the problems are, identify like a holistic solution, and then provide the software and services as a way to like actually solve that problem. That's what good sales actually is. Like really, truly solves a problem for a company that they couldn't have solved on their own. Um, and, but it took me a while to, 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 to figure that out. Um, you know, like our first uh, salesperson, this guy, Raphael, is like amazing, like can make a friend with someone in 30 seconds, no matter who they are. Incredible. Uh, totally not replicable. Uh, and so our second sales rep, who he hired against my against my judgment, uh, was like slicked back hair, jersey. I was like, there's no way this guy is going to be able to sell to developers. It's no way. Uh, but I was like, whatever. Let's Let's go for it. So. Anyway, that guy started and the customers loved him. And I couldn't for the life of me figure it out. And so I started joining him on, on sales trips, like just listening, like what is happening here? And at first it made no sense to me. Like you'd go into a conversation where he had outbound, reached out to someone and been like, hey, I want to tell you about this. And then we'd sit down in the meeting and he'd be like, so why are you here? Like almost accusatory. And the person would be like, so taken aback and baffled. And they'd be like, well, uh, I guess because we kind of have this problem with our data. And he'd be like, Why? <laughs> like, aren't you trying to sell here? Like, what's going on? And he would ask like that kind of accusatory why like seven times. And then he'd be like, okay, well, cool. Let me tell you about segment and like lay it out into their whole problem as they understood it. And I was like, oh, interesting. <laughs> and yeah, they love the fact that he actually helped them peel back the problem. Um, so anyways, like top or second top perform, second most best performing rep for like six years running or something like that. It's crazy. So I learned a lot from about product market fit and how to actually understand the customer need and so on from, from him and that sales process. 
So five years before you sell segment back in 2015 is when you first had the idea for Charm and you had the idea because you were actually looking for a solution for segments, carbon emissions. Tell me about that. Yeah, I wouldn't call it the idea for Charm, but maybe the motivation for Charm. Uh, in 2015, yeah, we were a growing company. We were like 50 to 100 people somewhere in there. And I was like, we should offset our emissions. Like, one, it's the right thing to do. It goes back to mom's influence. Uh, two, like, it's probably good for recruiting. And and Brandon's just like, again, it's just the right thing to do. So, like, let's go do it. So we went and purchased offsets like Amazon Rainforest and Indonesian Rainforest, like protecting stuff there. And didn't think much about it for the next year. You know, wrote a blog post or whatever. Uh, and then circled back the next year. And we're like, okay, what are we going to do this year? And I was like, what happened last year with those purchases? So we started digging through it. Like, uh-oh, like 70% of the money went to marketing. 20% went to like overhead in the US, really weird. And then like 10% actually went to forest. Like, shit, that's pretty under leveraged. What happened with the forest? And you're like, I don't know. Like, I couldn't tell you a particular parcel. I couldn't tell you anything about whether it was actually protected, like zero transparency, measurement, verification, nothing. And there were like these huge wildfires that year raging in Indonesia. It was just like, I have no idea whether what we did did anything at all. And I'm like pretty skeptical actually that it did. Uh, I would say this has now been borne out, right, with all this research, Berkeley Carbon Trading Project and so on, that like these things just don't do anything, um, unfortunately. And um, anyway, that was the motivation where I was like, looking around and I was like, there's no good product, but like, if you want to do the right thing, you have no option. Um, so that was where the motivation came from. A few years later, it was 2017, where I understand you spent basically every Saturday of your life looking at different carbon removal technologies and eventually deciding to create a new bio oil sequestration method for carbon dioxide removal, and then also a steam bio reformation as a pathway to decarbonize iron manufacturing. How did you decide on these technologies and this process and what did you envision it looking like on the ground as you were ideating and coming to these solutions is the thing you wanted to pursue each of these saturdays in 2017 i was basically doing different techno-economic modeling it's just like spreadsheet model of like i don't know let's try growing algae like what happens then and you're like you know model 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 like different paths i'm like oh that one doesn't work this one doesn't work that one doesn't work like i don't know probably 50 things that just like didn't work uh, as I modeled them, at least. Um, and, you know, not being a PhD in some lab somewhere, I wasn't going to, like, have some fundamentally new chemistry breakthrough, you know. So it was really trying to look at, like, existing industrial processes and figure out if there was a way to do an existing industrial process in a carbon-negative way. That was really the, the sort of prompt that the question I was trying to answer. Uh, existing industrial process, carbon-negative way, so that you could just run this thing profitably but have the side effect of putting a bunch of carbon underground as opposed to the reverse, which is what happens today. Uh, iron making, cement, uh, methanol production, uh, a bunch of hydrogen production, a bunch of those are like kind of the interesting, the interesting categories of industrial processes. Uh, I would say ultimately the we, what I kind of landed on with some friends was pyrolysis as a way of taking waste biomass and sort of valorizing it. Um, and getting some value out of that waste biomass. But it wasn't at all the like the final, the final vision, I think was really uh, came from two key ideas from my co-founder, Sean, who uh, at the end of 2019 and end of 2020, two years after we were already into the company, sort of like had the key insights that unlocked uh, the market and the cost structure uh, that would that would let us get, you know, get to scale. 
Mm. And what were those key insights? The first is that biomass is really fluffy. And so you can't move it very far. And it's just crazy expensive to move. And so his first breakthrough was, well, we could convert it into bio oil. And if we convert it into bio oil, then it's dense, it's liquid, it's pumpable. Like the whole thing is drastically easier to move. You can do rail cars, barges, ships, like whatever. Um, so that was his first insight. And that solved like the long-term economics of a bunch of different use cases. Uh, and then his second insight, we had some bio oil and he was trying to figure out how to dispose of it. And honestly, I was pretty annoyed with this because I was like, it's like a gallon. Like you can take it to recology. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. They have a you know, they have waste disposal. It's like not that hard. Um, and, but he was like digging into digging into it after a week. And he's like, okay, well, we have two options. We can send it to an incinerator or we can uh, have it injected uh, into a well. And I was like, okay, like pick your favorite. <laughs> I don't, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, can we move on to like things that matter? And he's like, wait, if we put it in a well, isn't that carbon removal? And then I was like, yeah, I guess so. And we're like, well, what's the cost structure? So like did the TA and we're like, well, I'll be damned. It's like significantly <laughs> cheaper than direct air capture uh, and so on. And so uh, that was that was key for us. We then called some folks at Stripe who we knew they had just announced their RFP for the first carbon removal purchase ever. And uh, we hurriedly patented and submitted our uh, application. And, uh, you know, like 72 hours later or something like that, we had our first 250K contract for carbon removal. The whole thing happened super fast, like maybe a week, but like, um, yeah, it was very nuts. From, from idea, from that idea of, you know, oh, this is carbon removal to landing Stripe as a customer and your first 250K. That was a week. Yeah. And I think this has been my experience with product market fit every single freaking time. It's like you struggle and struggle and struggle and struggle and you're trying to pitch and you're like, it feels like bashing your head against the cement wall to try to break through and like nothing's working. And then when you actually have it right, like, oh, carbon removal. You know. I was like, yep, I'll take it. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. done. And I've encountered the same thing in the in the iron making industry, actually, where like I was trying to sell bio oil to a technology maker who might make use of it. And it's just like, they were like not interested. I was like, okay, well, maybe we'll sell syngas that we can make from bio oil to an existing steel mill. That's like kind of working, but the brownfield integration was making it super complicated. And then finally I was like, okay, you know, screw this. What if we just sold you fossil-free iron, like hopper-cutted iron in a rail car? And they're like, oh, great. When can you send the first car? It's like, <laughs> like 10 years, <laughs> like back off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was like, that is literally really? the timeline that you have in mind for being able to actually ship. Yeah, hopefully not that long, but at the time it was. The okay. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's just like that flip to just like, I will buy it uh, is like the product market fit experience I've always had. And this was in May of 2020 when Stripe said, yep, I'll buy it. Uh, something like that. Yeah, yeah spring of 2020. Something like that. Okay. And so this is two years into you starting the company, but you're still CEO of Segment. Um, you got board approval to work on Charm a few days a week um, and didn't leave Segment until what, last year, 2022? Is that right? Yeah. January 7th, 2022 was my last day at Segment, uh, totally at the time. Uh, I took, took the weekend off and then full-time on track. Um, <laughs> That's very, very nice of you to do that for yourself. <laughs> um, yeah. Tell me, give me, you know, running two companies at once, like, you know, startup life is so all-consuming and, and you're doing it twice over. Yeah. I, well, one, a couple of things. Charm has always been very like restorative uh, for me. 
um, a growth stage software company that is like grinding from a hundred to 250 million ARR, um, is, is a grind. Uh, and I needed something to recharge me. Different people get that from different things. Uh, for me, it was like the meaning in, in the physicality of what we're doing at charm and, and just like the meaning of the work. Um, and so like, I talked to the board about that and they were like, yeah, you should go do it. And then short pause followed by, but let's just not talk about it. <laughs> you know, I just, I don't really want to hear about it. Let's just talk about segments. That's fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. In terms of like running to companies, it was a very, Charm was very small at, at the time, like, you know, sub 15 people. Um, and uh, we were largely doing engineering. We like, you know, as in the last year where it was overlapped and we were like starting to really ramp on sales, like I, I closed the first $10 million in bookings and like that was starting to become a lot where it was like a real business that was like delivering revenue and like, and all those things that was, that was getting to be a lot. Um, but before that, when it was, it was more limited in just engineering and, and, and so on, it was a little more manageable. I love the description of it being restorative. I feel like that's not always what we hear. And yet ultimately it is the sense of restoration that drives so many of us to be in this space. So I love that it is that for you. Um, so where did you go from there? You get Stripe as your first early customer. They sign up almost immediately. Tell me about actually that first project with them. And then how have the methods and the projects changed as you've gained more customers? And who are those customers? And, and how do you go about getting them? Yeah, so our customers purchase carbon credits, not necessarily tied to a specific project, but just kind of like a credit that then we go deliver at some point in the future. Um, about I don't know, five months later, Shopify became a customer. Three or four months later, Microsoft became a customer. And it just like kind of kept uh, kept cranking from there. Um, uh, a bunch of like high net worth individuals came and like offset all of their travel and so on. So um, their things, things really took off in like 2020 towards the, you know, ramping in 2020 and then really aggressively in 2021. And then... This year, 2023, we signed these very large offtakes with uh, Frontier, which is you know, that amalgamation of, of Facebook and Google and McKinsey and uh, so on, uh, and with JP Morgan. So we now have on the books like 150,000 tons-ish uh, that we need to go deliver um, and over the next like six or seven years. Um, but yeah, basically what it looks like is, uh, you know, first getting the injection side uh, in place so that we can put these carbon containing liquids underground. Uh, and then two kind of securing supply for, for those either purchased. Um, uh, that's a, that has been a very important part of our strategy to like start delivery very early by buying, uh, buy oil from, from other folks. And then now we're starting the ramp of our own production to bring down the cost of the bio oil, bring down the cost of the removal and ramp up the total volumes that we can sequester. You started buying the oil from others um, and doing the sequestration, but now you're doing both sides. You're doing the the sourcing uh, of the fluff, as you called it earlier, and then uh, creating the liquid uh, through pyrolysis and then doing the injections. Is that all correct? Yeah, just starting our ramp of our own of our own production of oil. Got it. Um, where is the production either happening or going to happen? Yeah, we actually we do a mix. Uh, Vast majority of the production in the near future will happen at our facility in Fort Lupton, uh, Colorado, most likely. Um, um, and 
it's like a nice operations hub for us. Uh, we chose it because it's on the edge of the Great Plains where you have tons of availability of, of agricultural residues. Uh, you have some forestry residues actually from, from the Rockies for wildfire prevention. Uh, and it's a very short flight between Denver and San Francisco, uh, 14 direct flights a day. Uh, so easy to keep a team connected. Um, and is it co-located with the injection sites or are you shipping it to another location? Yeah, not co-located. Uh, we will, we have a number of injection partners that we work with. Um, and yeah, so those are you know, in different states throughout the Midwest. What It Takes is brought to you by Shell Ventures. Are you ready to scale your work in the energy transition? With a dedicated $1.4 billion climate tech fund, Shell Ventures is partnering with innovative companies to build a lower carbon energy future. From renewable energy solutions to next-gen mobility and carbon abatement and removal, their portfolio of investments include some of the most promising companies at the forefront of the energy transition. Shell Ventures supports portfolio companies like Earth Optics, who are building better ways of analyzing how regenerative farming practices build carbon and nutrients in our soil. Shell Ventures is more than capital. They specialize in unlocking deployment opportunities both inside and outside of Shell to help their portfolio companies scale, access customers, and commercialize their solutions. Visit shell.com forward slash ventures to learn more about how they can help your company reach the next level of growth. What It Takes is brought to you by SPAN, makers of the award-winning SPAN Panel, a smart electrical panel that enhances how homeowners interact with their energy. SPAN has been recognized by Fast Company as one of the 10 most innovative energy companies in the world, backed by a leadership team that brings decades of climate technology experience from Tesla, Sunrun, and Google Nest. I had SPAN founder and CEO Arch Rao on What It Takes for a great conversation about the future of residential energy. Are you thinking of adding EV charging, solar and battery storage, or energy efficient upgrades to your home like a heat pump? Wired recommends Span Panel as, quote, a borderline genius app-controlled electrical panel, almost essential if you have a backup battery. Span was recently top five in Forbes' 2023 list of America's best startup employers and just closed a 96 million Series B2 funding round, bringing total funding to date to 231 million. Interested in advancing your career at one of the premier companies in climate tech or getting SPAN installed in your home? Visit SPAN.io to learn more. So in June of this year, you closed a 100 million Series B. Between both Segment and Charm, you've raised about a dozen rounds of financing. Who has backed you that has stood out uh, at Charm? And what have you learned about fundraising that you think other founders should know? Mm, I think the biggest lesson on fundraising for me is about kind of how to prime the pump, if you will. Um, a lot of founders come to me when they're like about to go raise their series A or series B or whatever. And they're like, what, you know, how, give me some advice. How should I, how should I do this? I'm like, when are you going to raise? They're like, Oh, I'm going to kick off the process in about two weeks. I'm like, I can't help you. <laughs> like you had to, this process started a year ago. Um, you know, like I just had an investor by this morning. Um, not an investor that we're like actively fundraising from or anything, just like, they were interested. Come on by. Let's show you the machines. Let's talk about how this works. Let's talk about the strategy. Let's talk about the pace of progress we've had recently. And they leave super fired up, right? They're like, "Wow, okay, this is awesome. I understand the. I think I understand the business model. Like, uh, I can see signs of the progress." But you know, a year from now, when or two years from now, whenever it is that we go and raise the next round, 
like they're going to now have two data points on a line to say like, oh, shit, this is like a really steep slope or even better yet three so that they can see an inflection, right? Um, and like that to me is what has been super helpful in a fundraising process. So I don't know, the, the last like seven, fund, eight, seven or eight fundraisers I've done have all been in less than a week. Because again, you have investors who are already really excited. They, they want to invest. They understand the strategy. They're just trying to understand. You're just negotiating in like terms, basically. Um, in many cases, they may have already put in a little bit of money because the round was was um, already filled out. And now they've been on the inside even with a small check and they want to write a bigger check. Um, so that, that has been the key for me. We've had amazing partners. Um, uh, you know, the lead in the series view was general catalyst, uh, Hemant again, it goes all the way back to founder's journey and one of the first checks into segment, um, incredibly helpful on the policy side, like hosting dinners at his house for us before he invested, like helping us establish, um, sort of policy groups, um, folks like lower carbon who are incredibly deep in the carbon dioxide removal space and climate tech broadly, um, who can give us a lot of like expert deep views into things like green steel or carbon dioxide removal. Um, so yeah, a lot of great investors around the table. And you mentioned, uh, the business model. Yeah. How do you all make money? I know you're selling the carbon removal credit and then you have plans to what it sounds like is to sell the commodity. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, we, exactly. We sell these credits. They're currently $600 a ton, uh, which is a high price relative to what people kind of expect a, a crappy offset to be. Um, uh, you know, obviously the difference being one of quality and permanence and all these other things that turns out, uh, are expensive today and will get cheaper in the future. Um, but yeah, currently it's about $600 a ton. Uh, we, I think have capacity in like 2025 and beyond, um, we're sold out for 23 and 24, uh, and most of 25, I think is spoken for and gets cheaper in, in, in the future. In the long run, we think we can get down to 50 to a hundred dollars a ton. Nice. How much are those cheap, crappy offsets today? And what are the factors that your customers care about? Why are they willing to pay that much for this quality? Historically, the market for offsets or uh, nature-based removals is um, has been about $2 billion a year, like the total kind of market size. In the last couple of years, it's contracted because of all the quality issues getting sort of transparent, becoming transparent in public. Um, and... Uh, so yeah, you have like a huge glut of really low quality credits in the like sub $20 range. And then, uh, most of the higher quality, uh, like reforestation, afforestation stuff is in like 20 to $40 a ton range. Um, again, it's still like, it's pretty hard to tell what the quality is and the permanence and so on are still much lower. So if you want these like extremely measurable, high permanence, high additionality, uh, kind of credits from director capture or bio oil sequestration or, or anything like that. It's all like $300 to $2,000 a ton. Mm-hmm. And what factors are the most important to your customers? You mentioned permanence, like how permanent is charms process once the bio oil you mentioned, you know, sinks and kind of settles. How long is it there for? Yeah, probably millions of years, uh, <laughs> certainly thousands of years. Uh, you know, what, what we think will happen to that bio oil is it's, it's basically in the sponge of the of the sandstone uh, and it'll solidify. And then, you know, it's warm down there as geology happens, it may get warmer or colder, but eventually it probably gets hot and gets baked into effectively a kind of really weird coal. Um, so that's probably the ultimate uh, resting place for that carbon. Um, 
over hundreds of thousands of millions of years. Um, it's hard to it's hard to speak in those time frames though. Just like what else can happen? Uh, asteroid impacts, like whatever. Um, uh, but well beyond the kind of scale that we care about, which is probably at least hundreds or thousands of years um, in in terms of human civilization. Um, and things like direct air capture into mineralization or enhanced rock weathering, these other things can achieve a similar level of permanence. And yeah, tell me about some of those other factors that your customers care about in addition to the permanence. Uh, additionality is a really big one, which is to say, if I, if, as a buyer, if I don't buy this, is it going to happen anyways? And this seems like an obvious thing. And yet there's an enormous amount of issues with this in the existing uh, space. So like the Nature Conservancy, for example, got in really hot water justifiably because there was a forest that they were already protecting in uh, somewhere in the Northeast US. And uh, they were like, you know, they filed some carbon uh, offsets that were basically like, well, if it's not paid for, it'll be cut down in five years. Like, that's just not, that's not really what's happening here. Um, and so that's an example of a false baseline that then generates a bunch of offsets that are meaningless. Um, and uh, it's, it's sad because that then is enabling a bunch of emi emissions, right? Uh, which obviously runs counter to the Nature Conservancy's kind of mission. So um, that's an example of, of not additional. Um, it would have been protected anyways. So additionality matters a lot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Permanence, additionality, anything else? Probably like the measurability. Like how confident are you that the number is right? Um, and this is a place where direct air capture and bio oil sequestration particularly shine. Uh, because you can measure exactly how much carbon is going into a subsurface, right? Uh, it's literally going through a pipe and you put a flow meter on it and, or a scale and you're off to the races. Um, this is less true of other, of other methods. So uh, measurement reporting and verification for enhanced rock weathering and ocean alkalinity enhancement is probably where those two methods are more challenged. Um, there's a lot of good work going into trying to figure out how to solve that. Um, but these are like open systems where like an enhanced rock weathering, for example, you grind up a salt, spread it on a field, CO2 and rainwater reacts with the ground up basalt and you transform a silicate into a carbonate, but the carbonate is soluble. So as this rock dissolves or converts into sequestering carbon, it also dissolves and like flows out through watersheds out to the ocean. And like things can happen along the way. They can encounter other acids that are stronger than the carbonate and like invert it. Um, uh, you don't, it's hard to trace like where exactly all that stuff is going. Um, so it's a much more challenging uh, measurement system. To date, how much carbon has the team at Charm removed? And you mentioned being kind of at capacity or sort of sold out through 2024, 2025. Um, so where are you today and where will you be by 2025? Yeah, to date, we've removed uh, a little over 6,000 tons uh, on a net basis of, of CO2. And uh we are sort of on track to do low thousands of tons this year uh, and thousands of tons next year. Um, and then capacity will hopefully really start to expand in kind of 2025 and beyond. Um, as yeah. And you mentioned that Charm has done the majority, what, 80% of carbon removal in the U.S. to date? Is that right? Yeah, permanent carbon removal, which would be like direct any of those four methods that I outlined, direct air capture, bio sequestration, uh, ocean alkaline enhancement, enhanced rock weathering. Of the sort of like claims to date, it's like certainly less than 10,000 tons. Like if we go and went to ask Frontier or any of these big buyers, like how much total has been sequestered to date, it's less than 10,000 tons, uh, you know, of which we're like 6,400. So that's really 80% guesstimate comes from. 
Yeah, got it. You mentioned earlier having a pretty lean team. Uh, so despite raising a total of $125 million to date, Charm has this lean team. How many on the team today and why the lean team? And what have you learned about hiring in your time, both at Segment and now at Charm? Yeah, the team's about 50 people today, um, which if you compare it to other kind of companies in in the carbon dioxide removal space, you know, at similar or similar-ish stage, probably in like the 100 to 400 people kind of range. Um, a couple things. One, I, I think that oftentimes companies hire in places because it seems like you should have something there. Like it seems like you should have a, a, a marketing team, for example, like maybe, but if you're sold out, like maybe not, you know, so there's like, there's a bunch of these things that are like, <laughs> maybe actually aren't that critical path. And so I think we have skipped some of that maybe partly just because this is round two for me and I, I have a better sense of where the bottlenecks are and try to concentrate more of our investment at the, after, at the bottleneck um, as opposed to kind of just like benchmarking, oh, a company this size has X many people in, in marketing. I don't know what the what the logic is that leads to that, but um, I think we've avoided some uh, bloat that way. Uh, and the other is partly inspired by my segment co-founder, Ilya, who has done a lot more of this actually, um, just keeping things more external when you're not a hundred percent confident that you're really going to need it full time. So like recruiting, for example, one of the pain points that we had a segment was like recruiting ebbs and flows. And if you build an internal recruiting team, loved all the recruiters that we had. And that's kind of the problem, right? Like if you have a recruiting team, but your recruiting is ebbing and flowing, like it's super stressful for them. Like what's their job certainty? Like it's not, it's not great. Um, and so we, we, for example, work with hourly, uh, contract, uh, recruiters and actually it works great and we can ebb and flow a little bit and like we pay a premium for that, but that's fine. Um, so those are, it's probably a combination of, of those two things. I think often small teams actually just do better. It's like, you have no more coordination costs. Like, um, so yeah. When you reflect on building the company since 2018, if you could give yourself advice back when you were starting in 2018, what would that advice be? I think something that went really well was the early focus on go-to-market, actually, of figuring out what is it really that customers want. So very easily could have gone and like built a bunch of hardware that like did things that we thought were going to be useful, like Syngas for this process or another. And it's just like, turns out people don't really want to buy that. Turns out people want to buy carbon removal. Great. Like that's, that's awesome. Um, that wasn't actually the case in 2018, but it became the case in 2020. Um, so I think that focus on, on go to market and what customers actually want worked worked well. Um, I think I would probably the major learning for me is probably to that we should have bought more hardware off the shelf at first and like earned our earned our way into um, into designing our own hardware when we knew why it should be done a particular way. I I, I find the the boring company is like a very interesting example. Not all hardware fits in this, by the way. Like if you're going to go build a rocket, like <laughs> you have to push the button three times. Like you got to make sure that it's going to work and like, and, and, and so on. You can't iterate on it, but something like a pyrolyzer, which we build, we can iterate on a lot. I think is very similar in, in many ways to like what the boring company is doing with a tunnel boring machine where they were kind of ridiculed for like buying a Chinese tunnel boring machine, but then they were modifying continuously. But like, you know, within a year, if you're like regularly modifying a Chinese tunnel boring machine, it's really no longer a Chinese tunnel boring machine, right? 
um, and you're finding all these incremental ways to improve. Um, so I think I would probably pull that pull that forward. Um, we've ended up going that direction, but um, I would I would start a much more iterative process using off the shelf hardware to begin. Got it. Yeah, and you mentioned you are doing exactly that buying, yeah, buying off the shelf and then iterating. Yeah, and it's and it's been hugely it's been hugely successful uh, in terms of like accelerating our our pace of progress on uptime on uh, yield on capex on operability like all these things just like way way faster. Hmm. How are you doing that prototyping and those iterations and uh, yeah, what has that looked like? One of the biggest uh, improvements has been actually building the operations team building out like a twenty four seven operation so we can test clean modify on a daily basis like test during the day, uh, clean, modify, prep for a fresh run the next day. And so you just like a daily testing cadence generates like an enormous amount of data, which makes it almost painfully obvious where the issues are. Like you really don't have to do a lot of analysis um, to know, know where the issues are. Like you send an engineer, for example, out to one of our deployments uh, in Northern California right now. And just like, you sit there for a day and you're just like, oh geez, there's like 10 things here that I could just like, <laughs> you know, you almost just like feel a, a, a a mandate to go fix those things. So I, I think that's really valuable. Mm-hmm. And eventually, will you pivot to developing the tech kind of from the ground up yourself? Or do you think you'll continue to buy off the shelf and and just iterate or modify? I think you only need to buy off the shelf once. Uh, so we bought off the shelf once and licensed, and then we'll, we'll deeply modify uh, from here. Has your leadership style changed since you started Charm? One of the things I always struggled with at Segment was sort of like leading with the mission. The thing that I really, I didn't care that much about the mission of marketing data and uh, selling better. Um, I So the anchor for me at Segment really was was only the people, um, uh, which mattered a lot. And like we we had a, you know, over time, like developed a really awesome culture that people love to be part of and, um, and, and so on. Uh, what's cool about Charm and what I enjoy and what I'm kind of like learning now and developing more in is like, we're a mission-based company. Like we're out there to accomplish something and that's very different. Um, in many ways it makes things easier, uh, but it doesn't come as naturally. It's like a new, it's a new thing to lean into like, no, we're really here for, for a very strong reason. Um, I'm really inspired by this story of, uh, uh, I think it was Kennedy was like touring during the space race was touring, um, one of the space centers, maybe in Texas, Houston. And there's like a janitor doing something and he's like, what are you doing? And, the janitor was like putting a man on the moon, sir. It's like love that story. Yeah. So like, how do you how do you really um, get that level of clarity of like for everyone of how are they really enabling you know putting a man on the moon or returning the atmosphere to two hundred eighty ppm? Because uh, people here are right. Like how 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 can they feel that on a on a daily or weekly basis? Speaking of your leadership and being who you are as a white man in the climate tech space, which is an industry that is majority white and male, like, how do you think about that? How, yeah, how do you think about that as it relates to your leadership at Charm? Yeah, I mean, recruiting a diverse team is super important um, for like all kinds of reasons, including company performance, um, as well as just like a broader sense of like fairness and goodness in the world. But um yeah, I mean, our, our leadership team here is 50-50, male-female, which I'm really proud of. Um, we can do better. We can do better on ethnic ethnic and racial diversity, uh, for sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a point of pride for me that we that we do have a diverse team. Um, can't change myself, obviously, but um, can 
can hopefully build a team that is. Yeah, that definitely stands out in our industry. Um, you mentioned a while back your wife, Erica, who you met in that Founders Journey class at MIT way back when. I know you have a, what, a three-week-old, a four-week-old baby? Yeah, almost four weeks, four weeks tomorrow. Oh my gosh, congrats. It's your third kid. Um, I know Erica is also a powerhouse. She's also in the climate tech space and the co-founder of Spark Climate Solutions. Tell me about Spark. Yeah, uh, definitely my better half. Uh, she is doing amazing work on methane specifically. Uh, it's a very like under, uh, like under researched or under explored part of the overall climate problem. Uh, like order of magnitude, a third of our greenhouse gas, uh, you know, uh, temperature um, forcing is coming from methane, and it's coming from like a wide variety of sources, which honestly makes it harder to address, right? It's not just methane leaking out of the natural gas pipelines and wells and stuff like that. It's also cows and it's also natural systems that are changing, um, uh, you know, like swamps that are changing in, from uh, sinks to emitters. Um, it's a whole bunch of different sources and it doesn't have very obvious solutions. So um, yeah, she's basically field building of like trying to figure out how to create a whole field or set of fields around all these different parts of methane. I'm super proud of her work there. And um, yeah, I think probably will have a bigger impact in the, in the long run uh, than, uh, than anything I'll do. So you're a partner to Erica. You're a father to your now three kids. You're a CEO and founder of now just one, not two companies. <laughs> what is it like being all three of those things at the same time? I love it. <laughs> uh, all of them are a, are a huge source of joy. Uh, I think, I think, the balancing the time uh, can certainly be certainly be hard, um, and uh, yeah, in particular, like company company and kids. Uh, kids will absorb as much time as they as they want. And I, I think uh, someone told me years ago that uh, kids spell love T I M E, um, which which I think is very true. So yeah, try to just reserve uh, heavily reserve evenings and mornings and weekends as much as possible for uh, for the kiddos. I mentioned this uh, when we spoke earlier, but yeah, I have a recently became a parent for the first time and have a three and a half month old. And yeah, navigating that, that like morning and evening time, you know, I'm back at work and I'm like, that time is precious and sacred. And it's hard. It's hard when you're used to just allowing work to consume you because you do love it and, and in a way you want it to. But then there's this other thing that just brings you immense joy that you want to you know, spend that time there too. And, and yeah, it's tricky. It's very tricky. Kids are, kids are such a mix of type one and type two fun too. You know, like, <laughs> For those that aren't familiar, like type one, like, can you describe what is type one and type two fun? Yeah. Type one is like, uh, just being so silly, you know, just like it's fun in the moment. Um, they're like doing something hilarious, uh, or saying something hilarious. Um, and type two is like, you know, it's kind of miserable in the moment, but you look back on it with, with like such joy. Uh, and kids are definitely both. <laughs> Agreed. When you look ahead, what will the future of the carbon removal industry look like a decade from now? Well, we need it to grow at something like 70% year over year. So it had better be, you know, almost 2x, basically. We probably need to grow faster on the early part of the curve. So we ought to be at like, you know, at least... 10 million tons or something like that uh, being removed uh, per year, a million, 10 million, somewhere in there. Uh, it's going to be a hard road to get there. That's a lot of infrastructure to get built very quickly. Um, so hopefully what it looks like is 
really strong government support for procurement of carbon removal, increased voluntary removal from corporate buyers um, who have all made net zero, many of uh, like some huge proportion of which have made net zero commitments by 2030. So like we'll be beyond that 2030. There's going to be a lot of carbon removal purchases, unfortunately, because the reductions are slow. Um, so yeah, hopefully there's like a dozen companies that are all, you know, delivering uh, close to a million tons a year you know, across different pathways. Mm. And if Charm succeeds, what does the company look like in a decade? If we succeed, we will have in a decade, we'll probably have a factory that's like pumping out uh, a big factory that's pumping out pyrolyzers, uh, which is the way to convert biomass to bio oil. Uh, we'll have a network of wells all throughout North America, uh, maybe starting in other regions like India as well, um, where we're injecting. We'll probably hopefully have one of our first iron making uh, plants or two or three up and running um, where we're making fossil free iron. And um, yeah, I think by then we'll probably not just be North America. We'll probably uh, be looking at expansion into India. Love it. We're going to close with our high voltage round. These are quick questions, quick answers, quick, like a few seconds. Uh, Peter, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? Badger. <laughs> you and Jean of Sila, who we've had on the show. Yep. yep. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> Interesting. Why? Uh, at least some badgers are just like going after it uh, in like a pretty aggressive way. So what inspires you? People building really big, impressive hardware infrastructure. My favorite thing is just actually going on tours and seeing the incredible infrastructure that people have built. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? Something in biotech. I think that's just like totally primed for the pump of just incredible impact, like staggering amount of breakthroughs research that hasn't been translated into therapeutics yet. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? Uh, my wife, Erica, for sure. What lesson has taken the longest to learn? Humility. It's like constantly sucks you in the face. Uh, maybe a funny story <laughs> example here. On the day that I announced that I was going to switch from full-time at Segment to full-time at Charm, there was like a TechCrunch story. It went out at six o'clock in the morning and I was kind of sitting on my high horse at my laptop at, you know, 6.15, feeling all proud, you know, whatever. And then my son, my son walks in and he says, Dada, I need you to wipe my butt. And I was like, all right, <laughs> that's the reality. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I love that. Uh, tell me about a specific time you failed. Well, at Segment, the first two ideas were my idea, uh, neither of which found product market fit. And the third was my co-founder's idea. And I thought it was wrong. So I failed three times in a row uh, on both sides of the both sides of the decision tree there. What's the best investment you've ever made? Best investment? I mean, it would be definitely be purchasing my Segment shares. I think I spent 24 cents. It's <laughs> <laughs> a pretty good ROI. What's something that you... Th thought was true that you no longer believe? I thought that companies were built from this like place of vision of like the world should be this way. And that's like a bullshit Steve Jobs narrative. You build companies and products to solve problems that other people have. And the world honestly does not give a crap what your vision is or like what you think, how you think the world should work. It like entirely is dependent on whether you solve someone else's problem and how they think it should be solved. When are you your best self? After I've exercised in the morning. What is your worst trait? I think my worst trait is a dismissiveness to new ideas that seem wrong or kind of like offend the sensibilities. Uh, and like my co-founder Ilya, for example, at Segment, we joke now that Ilya is always right. 
because there were so many times when he was right about something, but it like offended my sensibility in a weird way. Uh, and I think segment would have been a much better company uh, if, if I hadn't had that. Uh, and he was also right about a whole bunch of health stuff, like milk being bad, gluten being bad, like there are a bunch of examples of just, Elio's always right. <laughs> if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? People caring for each other. I think we're in the midst now of like a whole bunch of different wars going on. Um, Ukraine, Russia, Azerbaijan and Armenia, Israel and Palestine, maybe Israel and Lebanon as of this afternoon. Um, it's hard, but if we could care, care about each other a little bit more. Totally agree. Yeah. Mateo Jaramillo, who, you know, who's also been on the show, his answer was if everyone loved each other, I would, I would want everyone to love each other for, for those same reasons. If there was just one person who was going to hear this episode of what it takes, who would you want it to be? One of my sons or daughters. No, no. If one of them was in front of you right now, what would you say to them? Probably just want to hear how their day is going. No, I love that. All right. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because... They're not listening to what people actually want. If you really knew me, you would know... That I won't give up. Success is... Finishing what you set out to do. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have... Spent more time exercising. If the world knew me for one thing, it would be... Sorry, is this a theory? What it would be or what you would want it to be? <laughs> I would like to hear your answer to both. Well, what the world knows me for is segment. What I would want it to be on my gravestone would be a good dad. Hmm. I'm most proud of. Man, each of these is like a two-hour conversation to really figure out. <laughs> I know, right? This is my struggle. Like, how do you fit all this into an episode that's an hour or less? Uh, sorry, say it again. I'm most proud of. Yeah, I'm most proud of. Um, I'm most proud of at segment treating the team really right, uh, especially as like the whole exit and everything closed in such a way that a lot of people walked away with like a life-changing outcome. Uh, and that didn't have to be the case. There were a lot of smaller decisions we made along the way. Last question. To build a successful startup, what it takes is? Persistence. That concludes this episode of What It Takes. Peter, this has been really awesome. I love how thoughtful you've been about the questions and it's been really fun to follow what you're building and I look forward to doing that for a really long time. Thanks for having me. Peter Reinhardt is the founder and CEO of Charm Industrial. Join us for news stories each month of founders who are building our climate positive future. Their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. I'd like to thank What It Takes listener Already Taken, who said, so inspiring. This is the best series. What It Takes manages to get such honesty and vulnerability from their guests. These are the most impressive entrepreneurs in clean energy. A must listen for anybody, whether you are a clean tech veteran or just learning about the space. I would also like to thank my friend, Lara Pierpoint, Director of Early Climate Infrastructure at Prime Coalition for guest hosting What It Takes While I Was On Lean. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse and Powerhouse Ventures. Powerhouse is an innovation firm that works with leading corporations and investors to help them find, partner with, invest in, and acquire the most innovative startups in climate tech. Powerhouse Ventures backs entrepreneurs building the digital infrastructure for rapid decarbonization. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.fund.
Whether you're a first-time or long-time listener, you can support the show by giving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We read and appreciate every review and read some of them on the show. And if you have a friend or colleague who you think might like this episode, please send them the link. I'm our executive editor, Isabel Lee, and Jessica Macklin helped produce this episode. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes. 